Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we talk about the ideas and books which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. Today I have Dr. Elliot Grosso back with me to talk about medieval philosophy. Welcome, Elliot. Thanks, Gil. Great to be back. We are going to attempt to talk about a millennia of philosophy in this short podcast. And at the outset, we have to say that we are oversimplifying what's going on. This is a several 10,000 foot view of what's going on. And of course, there is nuance and all kinds of things that we could talk about during this time. But we want to get an overall picture of medieval philosophy. Elliot, could you talk a little bit about why it's okay that we're going to (laughs) go over a millennia worth of philosophy in a single podcast? I suppose it's okay to talk about a thousand years of history in a podcast because all introductions are introductory. There you go. (laughs) Let's begin by talking roughly the time period that we're going to be talking about And what are the big events that we can hang the rest of what we talk about in terms of the history of ideas on? What's going on in the world that we need to know as we're going to try to take on this monolithic thousand years worth of philosophy? Absolutely. So we're talking about roughly a time frame from AD 300 to 1400, there are a number of things that are happening that are very significant. So the term medieval or the Middle Ages was coined by Petrarch in the 14th century and the Latin medium ivum was the term that he used between basically the glory of the Roman Empire and this other pinnacle that he hoped would come soon, which kind of gave birth in the Renaissance. So you've got The Roman Empire, down kind of in the middle part, is the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, as he would have thought, and then you have the Renaissance on the other side. So there are some major infrastructural changes, cultural changes, religious changes, economic changes that are happening in this humongous swath of time. So around the 4th century, the 300s, Rome is in really bad shape. There's inflation, there are economic problems, there are invasions from the barbarians. The city of Rome has got plagues, people are dying, so that the place is not doing well. So Constantine is the emperor in the year 313, and he is one who legalizes Christianity. Prior to that, Christianity would have been tolerated on or off in varying degrees by different emperors, depending on the season or the socio-political issue. So Constantine legalizes Christianity. By 380, the emperor Theodosius mandates Christianity as the only legal religion in the Roman Empire. So if you were a pagan or polytheist or a worshiper of Zeus or something like that, you had to convert. There weren't really a whole lot of options for you. And so there's this huge social tumult that goes along with mandating what people believe and consequently how they behave in public as as a consequence. So that that's a big, huge thing. So St. Augustine was, was almost 30 years old when he saw Christianity become mandated 
in the entire Roman Empire. So Augustine starts out as a pagan, as a polytheist. He goes through various permutations of Manichaeism or Neoplatonism, eventually becomes a Christian, but he's watching all this unfold. So around 410, you have the sack of Rome by the barbarians. Augustine also witnesses this. The barbarians come through, they get inside the gates of Rome, they make a huge mess, kill all kinds of people, and all of the former polytheists, former pagans are saying, you know, this happened because we abandoned our gods. It's the Christians' fault that these guys ran roughshod through our plush purple carpets and our marbled hallways and things of that sort. And Augustine has to respond to this. He writes the city of God basically saying, no, you're thinking about it all wrong. Augustine dies in 430. Augustine is hugely influential. In the midst of the 4th and 5th centuries, there are all kinds of councils that standardize theology, that standardize the canon, and decide what is going to be part of the new imperial Catholicism that is covering the entire Roman Empire, stretching something like a million square miles. And by 476, Rome, quote-unquote, falls, which mostly means that it's in really bad economic military shape. It means that the barbarians from the north have installed a barbarian emperor in the city of Rome. So, I mean, Rome is still there. It's still standing. You know, they still have hot and cold running water and public baths and stuff like that. But the Romans are not in charge of Rome anymore, which is why it's described as a fall. So there are some kind of broad brushstrokes that are taking place. Without the Roman Empire as we've been talking about these past couple of podcasts and the sort of order that that institution brought to this huge mass of land, things begin to disintegrate. And ultimately, feudalism comes to be the way that things work mm-hmm. because there isn't one overarching entity that can provide security to everybody you end up with localized warlords who can basically provide security for a given area some of those are more organized than others you have figures like charlemagne who unify a large area charlemagne has warlords who are under him mm-hmm. So there's some sense of unity in a larger area, but by and large, people's experiences, you have the local liege lord who has a castle, and we farm for him, mm-hmm. and he fights off people if they come and try to raid our stuff. So there's a long period of time where what we would typically think of as civilization gets halted because you don't have the security to be making statuary and art and all of these sorts of things in general. Obviously, there are some exceptions to this, but there is a large swath of history from the end of the Roman Empire until the Renaissance where Western civilized experience sort of very similar across most of Europe. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Is there anything else that you think we need to have as a piece of the picture of the medieval period before we get into talking about what medieval philosophy was up to? 
I'll add one more piece. So if we think of the pinnacle of Greek philosophy in the 5th century BC with our Socrates, our Plato's, and our Aristotle's, that is happening because they have time and resources and therefore luxury to think about things and discuss them and write them down to produce texts. Right around the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, ancient climatologists think that there was something called a global cooling period whereby farming was really difficult to do above a certain latitude. So food is scarce, which means that people don't have resources, which means they don't have time to think and talk and write about stuff very much. That changes around the 12th, 13th centuries in the West, which permits there's population growth, there's new farming technologies, the universities are starting to be introduced, and you have time and resources to, to think and talk about stuff. So I would add that. Sometimes the medieval period is referred to as the Dark Ages. And you were saying earlier that Petrarch has this idea of we are becoming the new version of Rome. He has this very rosy picture of his own time. And there is a little bit of chronological snobbery from Petrarch and similar figures in terms of we're getting back to this glorious time and everything that came before us until you get back to the Romans, that was all bad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, it's important to recognize that the Dark Ages is sometimes used pejoratively mm-hmm. and that we need to be wary of that perspective because that is coming from a particular view of history, particularly from folks in the early Renaissance and how they were thinking about that. But more helpfully, it is important to realize that sometimes we can talk about this period as the dark ages because there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Yes. For the very reasons we were talking about, because people are not producing cultural artifacts, we just lack the same amount of stuff to be able to learn about this period of time that we would had they been creating those cultural products. So if you hear the Dark Ages, it's not necessarily the case that it was the bad times but it is the case that there's just less information than other periods of history. Now that we have looked at the history that isn't directly concerned with the history of ideas, it appears that in terms of medieval philosophy, the thing that distinguishes it is not so much the sorts of questions that they're asking, because they're still concerned about, like, how do we know stuff? What does it mean to live a good life? What is the nature of the universe? How does language work? All those sorts of questions that have been part of philosophy for a long time. But they're trying to work with several developments in the history of the West, and they're trying to figure out how it all fits together. Namely, you have this new mandated religious infrastructure. You have these centuries of Greek philosophical thought, 
And then you have the Bible. Mm-hmm. So talk us through what the project of working with those and what that consists of. Yes, it's extremely complex. We could call the nature or the character of this a synthetic character, meaning to bring things together, or syncretistic character. I can't say it better than C.S. Lewis, so I'll quote him writing in the discarded image. He writes the following, quote, They, the medievals, are bookish. They are indeed very credulous of books. They find it hard to believe that anything an old auctor, authority, has said is simply untrue. And they inherit a very heterogeneous collection of books, Judaic, pagan, Platonic, Aristotelian, Stoical, primitive Christian, patristic. Obviously, their authorities will contradict one another. If, under these conditions, one has also a great reluctance flatly to believe anything in a book, then here there is obviously both an urgent need and a glorious opportunity for sorting out and tidying up. All the apparent contradictions must be harmonized. A model must be built which will get everything in without a clash. And it can do this only by becoming intricate, by mediating its unity through a great and finely ordered multiplicity, end quote. So I believe one of the jokes that is sometimes made about medieval philosophy is these guys sit around wasting time arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And when you have a number of very dominant authorities, the Greeks, the Bible, the church fathers, you're not excited to say that one of them is wrong or untrue, so you're doing your intellectual work to figure out how all truth can still be God's truth and fit together into one coherent whole. So that involves redefining words and introducing new ones and and things of that sort. So let's take each of these main authorities, I guess we'll call them in turn. Let's start with the church, this governing institutional structure. What does the church have to do with the medieval's conception of what ends up being true? How is the church helping organize this project? Sure. Well, it seems to me that the church is trying to create order on two levels. One is about bringing order to the human soul through presenting the gospel in a way that will bring people to saving faith. That's a form of order. The second form of order is keeping the public peace and making sure people have what they need and that they can do what it is that they need to do in an appropriate way. So the church is in a position of having to arbitrate disagreements. If someone says this theological point, I don't think that's right, that's not just an intellectual question, it's also a political question because factions form around personalities who disagree with the standardized theology and create social problems and riots and things of this sort. So it's not it's not as ivory tower as we might think. It's neighbors in the streets who are arguing and fighting. This is what Augustine had to respond to in a lot of his writings and sermons. His community wasn't getting along. So they have to decide and have criteria about what is true, what we're going with, what's acceptable. And there are three criteria. The first is Catholicity 
or universality, the more widespread a teaching is, the more accepted it is. So, for example, when formalizing the biblical canon, those sorts of works that all the communities have that Paul and the apostles visited, those are going to be better candidates for the biblical canon because everyone knows them, everyone's familiar with them, everyone agrees that this is inspired. The second criterion after Catholicity is antiquity. So older votes count more. So if you're an Origen or a Clement or something like that, your input is more important than someone who is still alive and introducing new ideas and interpretations and things like that. The third is consensus. So the most votes. So it's kind of related to Catholicity a little bit. And those would be the criteria that the church is using to accept or reject different sorts of intellectual, philosophical, spiritual propositions. So this medieval notion of consensus seems like it could be very different from our modern idea of rationality. You could have somebody say, nowadays, the important thing is to stand with the truth, or I know I'm right. That seems to be a little bit at odds with this idea of consensus. Can you talk a little bit more about that difference? Yes. So I think that, you know, one thing that is happening in these discussions in the Middle Ages is that it's not so much one is always stating a premise and arguing it rationally, though there is a lot of rational argumentation in the Middle Ages and there is a lot of logical formalities that are used. Typically, what would rather happen is that someone would make a statement but then say who said it. Instead, they would make an attribution to a particular authority and that attribution was deemed sufficient for it to be believed. Whereas in the 21st century, one can certainly cite authorities, but we do not respond to authority the same way that they would have responded to authority in the Middle Ages. Yeah, it's that thing that C.S. Lewis was talking about in terms of the bookishness, right? If you have this sort of accepted group of authorities, then just stating their position is going to have a lot more force than in our day when there's just fractals of different authorities. And I mean, I I think there's a sociological reason for that. I mean, our culture is very much fragmented socially, where we don't know our next door neighbor, Uh oftentimes. Where in the Middle Ages, I'm not saying it was better necessarily, but you have much more integrated society where people have been living together for generations in the same area and, and know each other. So it's not so much you know, disagreeing with someone that you heard on the news. It's disagreeing with someone who a lot of people already know and accept and are are on board with. There's certainly advantages to that form of living. One of the observations I've heard of the Middle Ages is there might be four eligible bachelorettes, and that's sort of the whole world's worth of beauty versus now anybody that you might be attracted to in terms of aesthetics you have the entire world to compare them to Mm. and there's a kind of stress there coming from that the flip side of that of course is we have so much more information that's available to us so yeah the better or worse but certainly that that distinction is an interesting piece to keep in mind okay so the church is trying to organize life and we're sort of deciding how are we going to make decisions for everybody the things that they're organizing 
would be then the Greek thought and the Bible. So let's take each of those in turn. In terms of the Greeks, what are the medievals contending with and what are their takeaways from ancient Greek thinkers? Good question. So I want to make a distinction between how the medievals would think about theology versus philosophy. So we're talking about philosophy here. For the medievals, philosophy is the work done by unaided human reason. Luther will come in the 16th century and talk about a total fall. And that means that our, our will, our rationality, our intellect, every part of human beings are totally depraved, which necessitates God's grace for our salvation. In the Middle Ages, it was not uncommon to think that parts of man were fallen, but that the intellect or the rationality were still intact so that God could interact with that. So the idea that philosophy is work that can be done successfully and accurately by unaided human reason is not a crazy idea. Uh -huh. That's what philosophy does. Yeah. By contrast, theology is all about revelation uh -huh. directly from God. So this is how they're thinking about theology and philosophy. So on a philosophical grounds, all truth is God's truth. doesn't matter if Socrates says it or Plato says it or St. Augustine says it or someone else says it. If it's true, that's God's truth. So... One of the pieces that they have to deal with is that there is a kind of philosophy called Neoplatonism. It originates from a pagan philosopher known as Plotinus. He lived in Roman Egypt in the 3rd century. And essentially what Neoplatonism is, is it's an adaptation of Platonism. So if you've ever read a dialogue by Plato, these tend to be exploratory in nature. They would have counted as popular literature in which you ask kind of an open-ended question. A lot of them end inconclusively, sometimes frustratingly so. But in the process of exploring the question, you make discoveries in Plato's dialogue. And these are philosophical discoveries. So you might end up with some question in the middle of a dialogue, what does it mean to know something? And the Platonic answer is something like, well, to know something means for the mind or soul to recollect or remember a form. Like in the Meno, when the slave boy, quote unquote, remembers how to do geometry. Uh -huh. So things of this nature, this is Platonism. What Plotinus and the Neoplatonists do is they take these kind of footnote discoveries, as it were, and they turn them into fairly technical philosophical doctrines uh -huh. and treatises. So Plato's inconclusivity is overlooked or, or downplayed. They're seeing his conclusions or answers to these questions as determinative. So for example, they'll take what of man does the knowing? Well, knowing is done by the mind and the soul, not the senses, because it is the mind and the soul that met all the forms up in formland before it was born and forgot them all through the trauma of having been born. What sorts of things can we know? Well, according to Plato, those things are that which are eternal and immutable, that which doesn't change and lasts forever. What sorts of things are eternal and immutable for Plato? Well, it's the transcendent forms and ideas. What makes a man good or evil? It's knowledge or ignorance of the forms, the forms of justice, the forms of goodness, things like this. And so what is really real for Plato? Well, it's the eternal and the immutable. So the Neoplatonists take those questions and those conclusions and they formalize them. And they come up with things 
that sounds something like this. Well, the mutable, the transient, the material, well, that stuff's bad. The body is evil because it is made of changeable matter. The senses are the instruments of the body. Therefore, man's embodied senses are sight, sound, smell, touch, are unreliable and deceptive. They're evil. Ignorance is a privation of knowledge. People do evil things because they are ignorant of the good. Therefore, evil is a privation of good. Things of this sort. So what is happening in Neoplatonism is all of these decisions are being made about what's real, what's good, what's knowable, and they're being codified in a structural format that lives with the Middle Ages and medieval thought for quite a long time. Now, there's one part in particular that's really important, and the medievals didn't have a ton of Plato's dialogues. They had Neoplatonism, and they had the Timaeus. Now, the Timaeus is one of these unusual dialogues of Plato's that talks about the creation, basically. It's not going to sound like a biblical creation story. Essentially, for Plato, there's this demiurge, which is not God, it's not personal, and what the demiurge does is it emanates being. So the demiurge isn't it's not a being, it's not a person, it's being itself, which emanates out. So like for Plotinus, you start with absolutely nothing at all, and nothing negates itself, which gives you something, which he nice. calls which he <laughs> which he calls the one. Yeah. Right. And so the one super bees, it super exists, and in that it it emanates out other sorts of beings. And uh-huh. and if you imagine like a big warehouse, like it's totally pitch black, and you turn a light bulb on in one of the ceiling corners, okay, that's where the demiurge is emanating all his being. And then in the opposite far corner of the warehouse, that's Earth and the material world. So it's the furthest thing from the light. The darkness is a privation of light, just the way sometimes evil is considered a privation of good. This is a Neoplatonic approach to good and evil. Yeah. So this lives in the medieval mindset and defines a lot about how the Middle Ages thinks about things like the flesh, for example. Uh So like Paul will say, you know, the flesh is problematic, and he's speaking metaphorically there, but the Middle Ages is going to hear, literally, my skin, my skin cells are, are yeah. the problem. I live in a, in a body prison that my soul has to escape someday so it can go to heaven. So let me try to speak that back to you in a way that I hope summarizes what you're saying and highlights some differences between medieval philosophy and Platonism understood on its own terms. So I'm going to tell you some stuff and you tell me if you agree here. Way back in the day, Brian came on this podcast and we talked about Socrates. And according to what we were talking about then, Socrates' mission is to get you to think really seriously about what you're doing with your life. Obviously, there are important questions that have consequences for how you live your life. If you don't understand justice, you're not going to live in a just way. Now, maybe you don't understand justice intellectually, but you have to understand it with your being in some sense in order to be just. It sounds like what you're saying is that the Neoplatonists come along 
And rather than ask the question of how do you be a philosophical person, how do you live that examined life that Plato was so interested in you living, they rather take the specifics, the specific propositions of how the universe works and things like that, and they systematize it, for instance, in the Timaeus. One of the things that it says is that everything's made out of triangles, right? We would think about atoms now, but in the Timaeus, it's not little bits of stuff, it's triangles. The fact that it's triangles is really important and has implications for all kinds of scientific and philosophical questions. And so Plato may have been using metaphors or he may have hand-waved when it came to the particulars of how things worked, but the Neoplatonists are coming along going, no, Plato got it right, and here's what he said. Yes. Unfortunately, for most medievals, they're not dealing with Plato's texts. They're just dealing with the Timaeus, and then they're dealing with what the Neoplatonists said about him. Yes. Does that sound right? Yes, yes. Okay, so... Having a perspective that says this particular scientific answer is correct is a very different perspective from somebody who goes, you need to be just. What is that exactly in terms of how we can describe it in words? It's really complicated and hard, and that's why those dialogues end without resolving things, right? So you have this desire to cement these ideas that perhaps in the original version of the philosophy, that wasn't the point. Yes. Do you think that's fair? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So you have the Neoplatonists coming along and they are presenting a doctrinalized partial picture of Plato as the correct philosophical, metaphysical, scientific picture of stuff. Yes. The other important Greek influence is Aristotle. Yes. What became of Aristotle at the hands of the medievals? So one thing is the physical structure of the universe, which goes from Aristotle to an astronomer named Ptolemy, Aristotle's structure of the universe has Earth stationary in the center. The medievals knew that the Earth was a globe. They believed that there were several concentric spheres that held the planets within them that that all rotated harmoniously around them. So beyond the realm of the spheres, there is so the there's the Earth, and then there's the Moon in its sphere, and beyond the sphere of the Moon, so the planet's not the sphere. Right, right. The planet's stuck inside of a sphere. Yes. Imagine, like, imagine that you have layers of spheres that are rotating on top of each other. So the moon is a little bump yes. in this sort of larger sphere that's wrapped around the Earth, and it's rotating. Yes. And then you have you know, Mercury, Mars, whatever the order is, each of those spheres is also rotating. So you have embedded spheres, and the core sphere, as it were, is the Earth. Yes, 
Yes. Okay. So that picture of the universe was from Aristotle and lived on through the Middle Ages until Copernicus said with somewhat more force than earlier philosophers, hey, maybe the sun is in the center and we rotate around it. Right. The reason that that matters is that the medievals live in a very humongous but finite universe. Heaven is literally up and hell is literally down. Right. Because the earth is the furthest emanation from the light. We're the most impure, darkest place that that can be. So that is inherited from Aristotle. So like today, we look out of, off the earth and we see this thing called outer space. There was no outer space in the medieval mind. Not the way we think about it. So there's kind of like that view of the cosmos and how they work from Aristotle. The other things that come in from Aristotle have to do with highly functional, useful sorts of things. So like if you have a question about medicine or law or biology, Aristotle's got answers for you. He wrote very widely. Plato doesn't write a lot about scientific sorts of questions, whereas Aristotle does. Right. And so he fills in this gap that Plato leaves. It's the same sort of impulse, it seems like, as the Neoplatonists, in that you're trying to go, okay, how does it work? And you have this authority in Aristotle who's going to say what you're saying about the way that the cosmos is organized, for instance. Yeah, and I mean, it's a really big deal what he's doing because we talked a minute ago about just sort of this quote-unquote dark age where there was very little food to be had and there were attacks from the Vikings and the barbarians and all this kind of stuff. But once you start to come out of that and you have a population boom and you have more people to organize, Aristotle offers really helpful tools to organize how you're going to explain things in language, how you're going to conduct research, how you're going to do biology. It was, it was very useful at that time when he was reintroduced in, in the 13th, 12th centuries. So you've got the pinnacles of Greek thought providing philosophical and scientific answers to philosophical and scientific questions. And then the other concern of medieval theology is what the Bible is saying. And this is a special category because it's not accessible through just naked reason. You need revelation. How are the medievals conceiving of the Bible and how are they trying to fit it into the rest of the picture as we've been talking about it? And I think Lewis points at a hoped for and desired complementarity between these things. So let's say you have a question about physics. You know, why when I throw an object, does it eventually fall to the earth? Versus why do the heavens rotate constantly in perfect circles? Well, Aristotle has an answer for that. The Bible doesn't answer that question because those aren't the questions that the Bible is asking. So those things which can be fused together are those things that are hard to fuse together are seen as apparent contradictions, meaning just on the surface they look contradictory, but we're sure deep down somehow they could both be true at the same time. There were some things that were pretty much impossible to reconcile. So Aristotle claims that the world is eternal, which directly conflicts with Genesis. So things of that sort they had to be ignored, they had to be downplayed. I don't know anyone who successfully harmonized 
that contradiction. Probably few people tried, but you end up with these kinds of things. So like, on the other hand, things that are harmonizable is that Aristotle posits a first mover. Why couldn't that be the God of the Bible, for example? Additionally, Aristotle introduces other kinds of terms that Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century is going to use to help explain the nature of God, things like substance and essence and words that don't so much appear in the Bible to describe the nature of God, but they're helpful tools to explaining the nature of God to the medievals, so they, they use them. So one of the things that the medievals are often criticized for is for their obsession with allegorizing the stories in the Bible. Many of the folks in the Reformation who are going back to the sources ad fontes, they have a big problem with this medieval penchant for allegorical interpretation. Why are the medievals interested in allegorical interpretation to begin with? Could you give us an example of them using allegorical interpretation and how is that helpful to the project they're setting out on? Sure. Well, one way that one can think about an allegory is that you take a set number of pieces that exist in certain kinds of relationships and it's from the relationships of how those pieces are related that you can extrapolate a different set of meanings from what the actual words of the actual text actually offer up. Allegorical interpretation well precedes the Middle Ages, particularly in how various interpreters would deal with how the gods interacted with human beings. So the gods are not always keeping it PG let's say, when they're interacting with people and to maintain the dignity and respect of the public religion, they're saying, well, it looks like Zeus did this, but the way we should understand it is like this over here, this better, higher, much more PC sort of way of interacting with it. And so I think that allegorical interpretation comes kind of for two reasons. One is that sometimes the text is really impenetrable and hard to understand exactly what's going on. So it's easier to look at what you understand the relationships of the elements and reassign them identities and then extrapolate a new useful meaning. The second thing is that something completely horrific and unappetizing is happening, which happens plenty in the Bible from Sodom and Gomorrah to the crucifixion. I mean, these are horrific things that happen to people. So one example would be the story of Lot and his daughters from Genesis 5. This was an allegorical interpretation from Origen in which Lot it represents the law and the daughters represent Judah and Samaria. And so the whole notion of incest and all these sorts of problems that come up in this story, they're pushed aside, they're waylaid, so we can extrapolate something personally beneficial and transcendently beneficial from what's going on among the relationship of elements in the actual text. This impulse seems like it's still with us. This idea that there's certain things that are just not acceptable. Granted, the story of Lot and his daughters, it's a very troubling and strange story. Let's grant that. But this impulse to allegorize things to go, you know, the actual significant, important meaning of this is this whole other thing. That's still very much with us. Christians 
will have this sort of interpretation if they're not very invested in, for instance, Homer saying what he's saying, right? Let's find the Christ figure. Let's find the allegory. And it's not just with Christians. You get sort of Marxist interpretations and things of this sort where you go, here's what we know is real and true of the world. And now we're going to explain this thing that maybe is unsettling or we don't like in this way where we can be okay with it and, and be fine with it. And that seems to fit into this picture of you've got to harmonize everything, right? If I have this unsettling event and I don't know what to do with it, but for whatever reason, I'm committed to all of this stuff fits together somehow. Mm-hmm. The option to change my paradigm, if that's not really on the table, then a coping strategy seems to be to allegorize this thing so it fits into what I already believe anyway. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I think that happens often. There's an impulse for all the smart people to be on my team. So naturally they agree with me somewhere, somehow about my fundamental commitments. There's that impulse. I think the second one is, is actually still kind of a medieval impulse, which is with, which is with us today, which is, I want to say something to you, but I want to lean on an authority to say it for me. Right. So I'm going to take this authority, whatever it is, could be the Bible, could be Homer, and I'm going to use it to say it to you, even though obviously it doesn't say that. Right. One of the drawbacks to allegorical interpretation is that it becomes difficult to find the boundary of what is actually being communicated and with what intention. So it becomes very easy and a very slippery slope for me suddenly to find whatever I need to find in a text and have it yield that unto me for my own purposes. So is that the only sort of story in terms of the Bible or are there other uh, important contributions in the area of the Bible and theology and that sort of thing? Certainly. So though there was a school of allegorical interpretation, there was also a school that was interested in authorial intent. One of the forerunners was Augustine, who said in a book that he wrote on hermeneutics, it's called On Christian Doctrine, Augustine writes, quote, In asserting rashly that which the author before him did not intend, he may find other passages which cannot reconcile with his interpretation. Loving his own interpretation, he begins to become angrier with the scriptures than he is with himself, end quote. So what you're seeing from Augustine there is a strong move toward you know, yes, this stuff is difficult to understand sometimes. And, and Augustine was a superstar with language, one of the finest Latinists, perhaps in the history of the language, not with a whole lot of Greek, frankly, hardly any, and trying to deal with scripture in a disciplined and responsible way that cared about what the author was intending to say. This is him coming and admitting, you know, probably in a very difficult fashion that, yeah, it is hard. This is, this is hard to do, but we have to care about this sort of stuff. And so someone like Augustine would not have been particularly interested in allegorical interpretation. But the thing that Augustine would have had in common with the other folks interested in studying the Bible is he's saying, but it's still got to all work together, right? Yeah. We actually have this more difficult road because I don't have this tool 
of allegorical interpretation at my disposal, because that's cheating in some sense, right? I'm alleviating the tension there too quickly. Mm. But that impulse to making this all fit together is still part of it. So this is one of those places where you could start to see a tension between the allegorical approach and Augustine's approach. And that's some of the nuance that we're losing as we're looking at this at the level that we're looking at it. But Augustine and his allegorical opponents have in common is that they're trying to make this all sort of work together, even if the routes that they're taking to do that are different. Do you think that's fair? I do think that's fair. And I want to draw some distinctions with how the medieval, I almost hate to say medieval mind, because it's not like there's one and they're all thinking the same thing. I think there are kind of two ways that a medieval thinker is interacting with these various philosophical ideas. One is like the backdrop assumptions that they operate on, like they got to be true. Things like Aristotle's structure of the cosmos. Most people aren't reading Aristotle's on the heavens. It's been around for so many generations that it's just assumed to be true. Like someone says like, you know, hey, this atomic structure, such and such, or out there in outer space. Most listeners have never seen an atom or been in outer space, but we trust that they're real. Right. So there's that backcloth that's going on with the Aristotle and the Plato. Right. Then, by contrast, there's the new introduction of Aristotle, the like in-your-face new original texts where you're reading their actual claims written in their own language, uh-huh. and you're facing those kinds of things against uh-huh. the backdrop here. Uh-huh. And so the kind of harmonization is sort of, well, there's the Bible harmonizing with itself, right? There's the Bible harmonizing with what the church fathers have said, how they're understanding it. There's harmonizing the Bible with this kind of backdrop stuff, right? The shape, the structure of the heavens and things of this sort. And there's the harmonizing of like, oh, it's coming at me about, you know, rhetoric and law and medicine and do these things harmonize in that way. So the prevailing paradigm, set of assumptions, backcloth thoughts up against new information coming at a medieval person. I see. So you have a particular picture of the world that we know that's true right in terms what what the specifics of that are are different from our modern era but it's that stuff and then we're colliding with the bible and with other texts that are being found near the end of the medieval period or texts that they have preserved and going, okay, we know this is true, and then this new stuff is also true. How do we make it all work together? Yes. So, to finish up here, is this similar to where we can end up today if we are not inquisitive, I suppose? If there isn't a culture of inquisitiveness and there's just a taken for granted this is how the world is and anytime you collide with new information you're trying to make that work with what i already know is true do you think that's similar to what's happened with the medievals or do you think there's significant differences between their position and our position so even if people do have a calcified backcloth as you were saying do you think that 
that's the same sort of thing or is there a difference there that we should be aware of i think that in terms of how tightly or loosely we hold our assumptions and commitments and conclusions drawn from them i think you'd see the same spectrum in the middle ages as you would today on all these different sorts of fronts we all have to go about our day-to-day lives holding certain assumptions in just in order to function. That was the exact same thing for them. Then there are conscious decisions that we're faced with when new information, new ideas, new questions come up. And I think it's good to, to ask, is this stuff true? And on what basis would I decide? You would have had inquisitive cultures in the Middle Ages and you would have inquisitive cultures now. It's worth taking the time to sit and think. This thing that I'm hearing wildly clashes with my predispositions and my assumptions and what I've been taught all my life. Just because something is hard to get one's head around doesn't necessarily make it false. It also doesn't necessarily make it true. But when claims to ultimacy are made, and they're made to us on a regular basis, especially with the flood of propaganda that anyone who has a phone is getting access to, it's a wise thing not to hurry to any conclusions right. Right. and to sit and mindfully reflect about oh, what what did this mean and how do the pieces fit together with the pieces that I have and can they be fit together or not and if not why not yeah. and if so how comfortably do they yeah. fit and should they fit comfortably and questions are fabulous so this is this is speaking to what I like Elliot because I like to remember that the people from the 19th century were not black and white, right? They like, they were in color. Mm-hmm. The pictures we took are just that way. <laughs> uh, but let me, let me ask the question in a different way. Is there a key difference? Because the way that you answer that question just now makes it sound like different parts of the medieval period were more or less inquisitive, and we are now more or less inquisitive. And my question is, is there some fundamental difference, at least in the mindset of much of medieval philosophy, that put them in a different position than we are now? I think it's important to recognize the impact that bureaucratic legal standardization has on how we're required to think and interact with questions and nuance and difficulty. And so given that the world seems pretty complicated and nuanced to someone like me, it's not a bad thing to be slow to standardize decisions just for the sake of efficiency. Now, the church was in a very different situation because it had to organize a wildly diverse culture. I respect kind of where that had to be coming from, but standardization can create complications for the intellect and also for civilization. I think another piece too is that the medievals are dealing with material security on a much different sort of level than than we are. I mean, the first couple hundred years of the medieval period, there's food insecurity. And when you have food insecurity, the regulations and rules for keeping everyone alive and safe are going to be pretty clear and presented to you. So it's not going to be a free-for-all individualistic, like, what-have-you fest like we have right now. It's going to have a very different kind of character. So you're going to be reluctant to run wild with ideas, and you'll be slow to dismiss the stability that you have intellectually, which is hard-won and not prolific. So the takeaway from 
the medievals is what is happening in terms of our economic and geopolitical situation has consequences for how we think about things, what we're open to questioning and what we feel like we need to stick to. Human society has not always been free to be as expansive in its questions as we might be now. On some level, we assume that because we live in the age of free information that we're somehow less dogmatic. Yeah. And we're not. Yeah. Be good to recognize that we're not. Yeah. There are many impulses that are obviously problematic as the medievals are still employing them, but we are not necessarily free from those ideas, but it's less obvious because we are not constrained in the same sorts of ways that they might have been. So there are basic human impulses that we see on display in the medievals and it is tempting with petrarch to be like oh but we've surpassed all that now i think it's worth considering the significance of one's inheritance and taking that seriously and giving that attention even if it's not correct there are patterns of thought that can enrich our lives and our own intellectual process if we're willing to stick in there and give it its due because the people who came before us, I mean, some things were different, but their humanity is our humanity. And that can be really helpful for the person who is interested in understanding what it means to be human. One of the things that the medievals do so spectacularly is unify things. Sure. One of the great epics of Western civilization is Dante's Divine Comedy, and it is a work of taking everything and making it into one thing. And we live in an age now where we are fragmented and we recognize differences. And in some ways, it's important to recognize those differences. Yes. But human civilization, Western civilization, is complicated and there is a kind of beauty in the unity, a kind of simplicity worth striving for, even if the medievals in filling in the particulars were as clumsy as human beings are going to be. Yeah, well, I mean, they were certainly committed to holism and including everyone who could be included and including all the pieces and there's actually there, there's a level of inclusivity there that's that's very interesting i think admirable to pay respect to not only the living but but one's heritage as well i mean some things worked better than others but i admire that sort of holism as a principle probably the biggest thing we're running into is the fact that we're trying to summarize the goods of a millennia worth of philosophy and the truth is that many goods came from that millennium and granted lots of problems came from that millennium as well. So for our purposes, recognizing that in general, there was an impulse to make everything fit 
and that that is born out of the historical situation in which the medievals found themselves is important. But it is worth our listeners' time to maybe explore more specific thinkers and books that come from the medieval period because it was a millennium's worth of varied humanity. So hopefully this conversation has oriented folks such that the somewhat peculiar way or ways in which the medievals go about navigating how they're thinking about things is not totally foreign if people decide that they want to investigate thinkers and writers during the medieval period. Well, Elliot, I think we're going to wrap up now. Thank you for taking on this behemoth of medieval philosophy with me. Thanks for having me. Been a lot of fun. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at podcast at gutenberg.edu. We will be back to continue talking about the books and ideas which have shaped Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College.